Hello everyone and welcome to episode 22 of the Mysterious Benedict Society Read Aloud Podcast Book 3. Today we'll be reading chapter 22, but first a recap of chapter 21. First the children went to check the gate entrance to see if there was a chance they could sneak out, but there wasn't. Kate had an idea to try and steal the salamander and escape that way. They managed to crash the section of the wall down, but before they could get any further, Mr. Curtin showed up and he had made the Whisperer portable. Soon after, SQ arrived, but he had refused to touch the children for Mr. Curtin anymore, although he would still follow him. Mr. Benedict arrived and told the children what he was working on so hard before with the Whisperer, and he was trying to permanently disable it, which he succeeded in doing. Mr. Curtin and SQ tried to escape, but fortunately failed, and the children thought they saw hope in Mr. Curtin's eyes as he was finally caught. Okay, that's the end of the summary, but I would like to give a shout out to Nava for your incredibly sweet voice message to me. You guys seriously bring me to the verge of tears with how kind you all are. So Nava, thank you for support and listening, and I hope everyone enjoys the episode. Chapter 22, Projects and Poetry Mr. Bandit awoke with a start and ran his fingers through his rumpled hair. Glancing about, he found himself in a study chair, flanked by Rhonda and number two. Across the desk sat a frowning Mr. Gaines and a worried-looking Miss Argent. Ah, Mr. Benedict said, you were saying, Mr. Gaines. Have you already forgotten? growled Mr. Gaines. Apparently, you found it quite humorous. Oh, yes, Mr. Benedict said with a smile. You were warning me of the consequences of failing to cooperate. I apologize. I thought we had established that the Whisperer no longer functions, so your threat to deny me access seemed like a joke. Mr. Gaines stared at him coolly. We thought, with proper incentive, you might be persuaded to restart the Whisperer. To do so, I would essentially have to reinvent it, Mr. Gaines, a project that would take many years and in which I have no interest. Mr. Gaines grunted doubtfully. We'll return to this subject later, then. Right now, we have some straightforward questions, and you will be well advised, Mr. Benedict, to answer them honestly. I shall do my best, Mr. Benedict declared, patting the hand of number two, who had bristled at Mr. Gaines' words. Rhonda reached across and handed her a banana. Why didn't you ask them all together? It would be more efficient that way. Oh, and if you don't mind, please start at the end of the list and work your way backward. Changing the order of things often helps clarify my thinking. Mr. Gaines rolled his eyes and turned to Miss Argent, who nervously flipped to a different page on her clipboard, cleared her throat, and began reading the questions from a long list starting at the bottom. As promised, the questions were fairly straightforward, but anyone unfamiliar with the case, they would have seemed like jokes and riddles. What were the strong man and the security guard doing in the prison elevator? Who hit the man and the seersucker with the fake ambulance? How did the secret agent come to be in the courtyard with so many broken bones? And why did he seem so cheerful about it? What exactly happened to the salamander, the whisperer, the wheelchair, and the crane? These and several other questions Miss Argent read with a straight face and an even deliberate tone. Mr. Binks listened attentively, looking thoroughly entertained. When she came to the end, he said, all excellent questions, Miss Argent. In response, allow me to offer a short narrative of the pertinent events. If you prefer, I shall start at the beginning rather than the end. Oh, please do, said Miss Argent, and Mr. Gaines nodded briskly. Very well. The beginning is this. My brother's spies deceived your top advisors, the group of experts you conveniently summoned to Stonetown, Mr. Gaines, and were talking to them to meet my brother at the prison, where he intended to use his whisperer to extract top-secret information from them. When we learned of this, my associates and I intercepted their vehicle, and Milligan and two of his sentries apprehended the spies, all of which I believe you know already. 
And when I informed your advisors of my brother's plot, they agreed it would be preferable for them to exit the vehicle and seek shelter beneath a highway overpass. Extreme haste was necessary in order to save the children, for if the van did not arrive on time, I believe my brother would go suspicious and move to another secret location. Therefore, although Milligan sent instructions for several more agents to follow after us, we could not wait for them to organize their team. Our plans was for Milligan and his sentries to infiltrate the prison and bring the children back to the van. The rest of us were to wait in the van in our disguises. I have neglected to mention our disguises, but I assure you we look quite dashing. Pretending to be sentries ourselves, and thus we hoped starving off any reckless attacks from the part of the ten men. Unfortunately, things went awry, and when Milligan did not communicate with us, his radio had been broken, Muto and Mrs. Plug decided to go in after him. They managed to get to the roof with the intention of scouting the area, but McCracken arrived at the same time, and Strangle issued. Eventually, Milligan intervened and secured them inside the elevator for their own protection, but his conflict with McCracken accumulated in a fall from the roof into the courtyard. I believe this explains the broken bones. Miss Argent nodded without looking up from her clipboard. She was frantically taking notes. Mr. Game was studying Mr. Bennett with narrowed eyes, as if he suspected trickery and was intent upon discovering it. Now then, Mr. Benedict continued, during this time Milligan's sentries were engaged with another ten men, but they too were defeated, shocked unconscious, at which point Rhonda and number two thought it necessary to enter the fray. I was still asleep at this time, but I believe it was number two who hit the ten men with the fake ambulance. Am I right, number two? It would be more precise to say that he hit me, said number two with a satisfied tone. He was pursuing me at full tilt when I applied the brakes. Rhonda took advantage of his discomposure by securing him with a chain from his briefcase. He was terribly annoyed, Rhonda put in. What of the other ten men, Mr. Gaines pressed? Your report stated that Milligan's agents rounded up a baker's half-dozen, which we took to mean seven, since that number corresponds to our own information. I must admonish you, Benedict. It is highly irregular and inappropriate language for an official report. So you did receive my report, Mr. Benedict said, then scratching his head in a puzzled expression, he asked. Why then have you asked all these questions? I'm certain I've already addressed them. You've addressed almost nothing, said Mr. Gaines indignantly. For one thing, you hardly mentioned the children in the report, and in your so-called narrative just now, you've admitted their role entirely. Mr. Benedict raised an eyebrow. The children were kidnapped and held hostage, Mr. Gaines. That was their role in the affair. There is little to discuss. Indeed, now that I know you've received my report, I see no point in continuing this conversation. The point, Mr. Gaines cried, is that you've left out important facts. How did you know about Mr. Curtin's plot, Benedict? How did you know about his spies? How did you know he was at the prison? And for the last time, what happened to the Whisperer? You seem to have something in mind already, said Mr. Benedict. Tell me, Mr. Gaines, what do you think happened to the Whisperer? Mr. Gaines leaped to his feet. I'll tell you what I think. I think you sabotaged it, Benedict. It didn't simply malfunction, as your report states. You purposely sabotaged it. But, Mr. Gaines, if I had sabotaged the Whisperer, wouldn't I have done so while it was still in my possession? Yet it was obviously functioning when my brother stole it. Otherwise, he wouldn't have arranged to bring your advisors to the prison. He couldn't possibly hope to get away with his plan without using the Whisperer, now could he? Mr. Gaines stomped his foot. You're playing tricks, Benedict. You keep evading my questions. Did you or did you not? Excuse me, said Mr. Benedict, for just then a telephone rang. The ring was muffled, but it clearly came from somewhere in the study. Mr. Benedict lifted a stick of papers and looked beneath it, then opened the top drawer of his desk. He frowned. I think it's in the bottom drawer, Rhonda muttered. Thank you, said Mr. Benedict, retrieving the telephone. He lifted a finger to indicate he would be with Mr. Gaines in a moment. Hello, this is Nicholas Benedict? Yes. Certainly. Oh, no, not at all. 
Yes, he's here with me now. Mr. Benedict held out the telephone. For you, Mr. Gaines, it sees you're being removed from your post. Mr. Gaines blanched, opened and closed his mouth a few times, then reluctantly took the telephone. After listening a moment, he sat down again, and for some time he continued to listen, occasionally muttering dejected replies. Meanwhile, Mr. Benedict laced his fingers together and turned to address Miss Argent, who seemed uncertain what to do. Never fear, Miss Argent, the official reason for Mr. Gaines' dismissal is his filing of an erroneous support. The one concerning the smoldering wreckage my brother's men deposited in this house. That report wrongly suggested, as you know, that the whisperer had been destroyed and that I was somehow responsible. The evidence has since reputed this suggestion and supports your own report, in which you express a conviction that I was telling the truth. Thank you for that confidence, by the way. Also allow me to offer you my congratulations. You're about to be promoted. Miss Argent's eyebrow shot up. Promoted? Indeed, apparently you've been given full responsibility for this case. By the time Mr. Gaines finished his telephone conversation, Miss Argent was sitting up straight in her seat, her shoulders square with a new confidence and a determined eager look in her eyes. Mr. Gaines handed her the telephone without quite looking at her. I've been told to leave at once, Mr. Gaines mumbled, staring at his feet. Well, if you must, Mr. Benedict said, Rondo, will you see you out? Would you like an aspirin or a glass of water first? You look unwell. No, thank you, muttered Mr. Gaines with a faint nod, and with Rondo gripping his elbow, he shuffled out the door. Dismissal seems to suit him, number two observed. He smiled her and more p polite. At any rate, Miss Argent spoke on the telephone only for a minute, and was in Mr. Benedict's study only a few minutes more. She was closing the case immediately, she said. Any relevant paperwork would be delivered to Mr. Benedict to sign at his convenience. I'll draw the papers up myself, she concluded. I don't believe you'll find anything objectionable in them. Thank you, Miss Argent, said Mr. Benedict, shaking her hand. And now for more joyful matters. Our friend Mucho has prepared tea and cookies for a small celebration, if you care to join us. I'd be delighted, Miss Argent exclaimed. And for the first time anyone could remember, she smiled. What is the celebration for? Mr. Benedict pursed his lips. That's a reasonable question, Miss Argent, but I'm afraid... Now, which is it today, number two? We've had so many lately, I forget. Last week, we celebrated the Whisperer's demise, and yesterday we celebrated Milligan's retirement from secret agent work. He means to spend more time with his daughter, Miss Argent, and to do so in one piece. But what is the occasion today, number two, do you remember? For shame, Mr. Benedict scolded number two in a shocked tone. We're celebrating the discovery of the papers. I was only joking, said Mr. Benedict, laughing. Number two blinked at him, obviously baffled. You see, Miss Argent, we finally located the documents that will allow me to officially adopt Constance. It's a truly wonderful occasion. Why, that's marvelous, Mr. Benedict. Allow me to congratulate you. Thank you, thank you, said Mr. Benedict warmly, once again shaking her hand. You know your way to the dining room, don't you? Number two and I will be along in a moment. As soon as Miss Argent had gone out, Mr. Benedict turned toward the wall behind him and said, I thought we agreed there would be no more eavesdropping children. Number two gasped indignantly and rapped on the wall with her knuckles. Honestly, children, how rude. After a brief silence, three muffled, contrite voices said they were sorry. I never agreed to any such thing, protested a fourth. Also, Mr. Benedict, I know perfectly well that you made the joke just to get my goat. Well, said Mr. Benedict with a chuckle, perhaps I did. Some weeks after the incidents of the Third Island Prison, and some days after the eavesdropping incident in Mr. Benedict's house, the young members of the mysterious Benedict Society paid their first visit to the Thalter Curtain. They were accompanied by Mr. Benedict, Rhonda Gonzabe, and Number Two, but even so they were reluctantly with no small amount of misgivings. Only afterward, as they were riding away from the special high-security prison in which Mr. Curtin now resided, 
did they begin to feel good at all about the trip. You are right, Mr. Benedict, Kate sent them back the seat of the station wagon. Things are much more pleasant when you stop being angry. I wonder if Mr. Curtin will ever figure that out. Mr. Benedict turned a smile at her. I'm curious myself, Kate. I do hope to find out eventually. Perhaps after 10 or 15 years of weekly visits, Lothodger will turn to the corner. Who knows? He might even be persuaded to use his talents for good. He would be far more rewarding than using them for nothing. I hope you aren't going expecting me to go along on those visits, Constance grumbled. He didn't even accept the cookies. He threw them on the floor, and they were perfectly good cookies. You can decide for yourself whether to accompany me, Mr. Benedict said. You certainly need to feel obligated. He isn't your brother, after all. Although it's true, so be your uncle. In any case, you'll be welcome to join me whenever you wish. That's true for all of you, I should add. Well, it was good to see SQ again, Rennie said, and I suppose he'll be there often. Did you hear him say that he's been visiting every day, and that yesterday Mr. Curtin looked at him once without growling? That's progress, I guess, said Sticky, blinking exaggerately. He had just been prescribed contact lenses and was still getting used to them. His eyes constantly felt as if they had something in them, which of course they did, and without his glasses, he felt as bald as his head. For a while, they talked about the Tenmen, Mr. Precious and Mr. Bain, and all the other figures involved with Mr. Curtin, who had been taken into custody at last. And then as they skirted Stonetown Harbor, they discussed Mr. Benedict's new project. He was studying his brother's tidal turbines with the aim of replicating them for the benefit of other cities. It was one of the many projects he had planned now that Mr. Curtin and the Whisperer no longer occupied all his time and energy. Speaking of time and energy, Constance said, I've been wondering something, Mr. Benedict. Why didn't you just disable the Whisperer right away? I mean, once you learned it was going to be taken from you, why did you spend all that time in the basement programming it to go kaput later? Mr. Benedict hesitated a split second before saying, To protect myself, Constance, Mr. Bain has private orders to check up on me, and on the Whisperer in particular every day until the hour appointed for its removal. If he had discovered it was no longer functioning, well, the situation at that time was delicate, and I might have been arrested for destroying government property. These remarks were followed by an uncomfortable silence. At least it was uncomfortable for Rennie, who sensed that some things had gone unspoken, and that the adults were in secret conflict over it. He detected Number Two's look of disapproval, though she tried to conceal it, as well as Rhonda's impulse, barely checked, to add what Mr. Benedict had said. You did it for me, Constance cried suddenly, but why would you try to hide that? Oh, there was no reason to go into it, Mr. Benedict said breezily. It's true I didn't wish to disable the Whisperer until we had a chance to recover your memories. And then again, if I had been arrested, all the questions surrounding your adoption would only have grown more complicated. But Constance, my dear, he went on quickly when she began to ask another question. You really must stop reading our minds without permission. Not only is it impolite, it is unwise. Think of all these surprise parties you'll ruin. I wasn't trying to, Constance protested. Sometimes it just happens. It would happen less if you practiced, number two said irritably. She had shared her snack with Escubadelian and was suffering from it now. Every day we sit down with you to work on it, and every day you refuse. You're the one to talk about refusing, Constance snipped. After all this time, you still won't tell us your real name. This comment, which seemed to have come out of nowhere, prompted curious glances from the other children. Constance's eyes are squeezed tightly closed. Number two had just begun to chide her for changing the subject, when Constance's eyes popped open with a look of delight. Pencilla! she exclaimed triumphantly. That's your name, Pencilla! The other children gasped. So did number two. You, you set me up, cried number two, flustered and indignant. You mentioned my name so sure I'd think of it. That was extremely inappropriate, Constance, said Rhonda, frowning at her in the rear of mirror. But to number two, she murmured. Still, it was about time they knew your given name. Oh, I suppose, but it's just... 
Number two blushed and put her hand to her head. It just doesn't feel right. It never has. I think Pinsilla is a perfectly lovely name, Kate declared. Don't you, boys? I love it, number two, Rennie said. Really, it's a great name. Stiggy nodded. Me too. I think it suits you. Suits me? How do you mean, said number two, knitting her brow. There was a tense pause. Rennie whispered into Stiggy's ear. Because it's pretty, Stiggy said, and everyone immediately, empathetically, agreed. That night, Mr. Bannock was sitting on the floor as his study, as was his habit when working alone, when there came a knock on his door. He contemplated the door before answering. In fact, he almost didn't, which was not his habit. But then he lowered his papers and said, Come in, all of you. The children filed into the study. Rennie closed the door and everyone sat on the floor around Mr. Benedict. Their expressions were serious. I see we have something to discuss, Mr. Benedict said. More than that, Kay said, we have something to do. Constance pointed her finger at him. I know why you didn't want to talk about the whisperer today. You don't want me to find out how close you were to finding a cure for your narcolepsy. Mr. Benedict considered a moment before replying. Forgive me, my dear, but I was a bit embarrassed. I hope you can understand. With such urgent problems afoot, it would have seemed selfish for me to spend time working on what was, at bottom, a personal matter. But you're right, I was closer than I let on. I am sorry for keeping it from you. How close were you? Constance demanded. Exactly how close? Mr. Benedict had looked apologetic. Now he looked resigned. I see you already know the answer. He waved his hand carelessly. It's really of no consequence, Constance. You more than used to living with my condition, and... You put it off, Constance cried. You were only a few hours away. Hours! But you didn't go through with it. Because of me! It's more complicated than... Don't try to explain it away. I've already gotten to the whole truth from Monda number two. Not exactly with their permission, Stiggy put in, with a significant look. Constance pressed on. You thought it might exhaust you to try it, and so you didn't. You wanted to be alert and strong enough to deal with Mr. Precious and to help me recover my memories. You knew you were risking your opportunity. You knew you might lose it, but you put it off anyway because of me. You gave up your chance for sake, and that's why you didn't want me to know about it. Because you didn't want me to feel bad about it. Mr. Benedict pursed his lips and said nothing for several moments. But at last, as all the children were staring at him with a clear exception of the truthful answer, he smiled somewhat ruefully and tapped his nose. Suddenly, Constance was all business. That's all right, she said in a matter-of-fact tone. I'll forgive you on one condition. She paused dramatically. You let me try to fix your problem. That's what I meant when I said we had something to do, Kate said. I gathered as much, Mr. Benedict said, and with a wondering expression he looked from face to face. And I see you are all determined that this should happen. But Constance, you know I cannot possibly allow it. I am deeply touched, you must know that, but... You don't think I can do it? Constance snapped. I... Mr. Benedict frowned. I... You're not sure how to answer, Rennie said, because she has you trapped. If you say that she can do it, she'll insist on trying. If you say that she can't, you'll be lying. She already knows you think she can do it. We've been talking about this all evening, Mr. Benedict. Mr. Benedict gave Rennie a helpless, ironic smile. Thank you, Rennie, for clearing that up. We know you don't want her to try it, Kate said, because of how sick you'll think it will make her. And now if it doesn't work, she'll have gone through all that misery for nothing. But she doesn't care, Mr. Benedict. She wants to try it anyway, and we want you to let her. That's why we're here, Stiggy said, for moral support. And we've agreed to take turns sitting with her all night to keep her company while she's so miserable. I want to do this, Constance insisted. Please let me try. Please, Rennie said. Pretty please, Kate said. Beautiful please, Stiggy said and winced a little, for it seemed wittier than he'd thought when he spoke it aloud. All the children clasped their hands together, pleading. Mr. Benedict looked at him with his bright green eyes shining. Then he fell asleep. 
When he woke up, there they were, still clasping their hands together and widening their eyes with exaggerated puppy dog looks. And this time he laughed. He fell asleep twice more. And when he awoke the last time, he agreed to let Constance try. You'll tell me exactly what to think, Constance said, right? With your mind, I mean? Yes, my dear, and the thoughts will be fairly simple, but you need to think them with as much intensity as you can manage. That's what I figured, Constance said. I'm ready to try. She swallowed dryly, thinking of the misery that would soon be upon her, but she did not flinch. I think it will be best, Mr. Bendix said quietly, if you stare directly at me. Do not close your eyes. Constance nodded and began to stare. Let's go. Mr. Bennett took a deep breath, relaxed his shoulders, and fixedly returned Constance's gaze. For five minutes, the more the two of them stared and stared. The others were reminded of a contest, in which each person tries to get the other to laugh. But never had any of them seen two people gazing with such intensity. It was disconcerting, so much so they were tempted to look away. But they held still, afraid of causing distraction, until a last look of frustration passed over Constance's face, and she broke off the stare with an irritated grunt. I don't feel like it's working, she thumped her fist against her knees. It's, somehow doesn't feel strong enough. It isn't like it was with the other times. Never fret, Mr. Benedict said gently. He seemed a bit relieved. Perhaps someday when... But Rennie, thinking back, felt a sudden flash of inspiration. Try getting angry, he suggested. Mr. Benedict lifted an eyebrow. He glanced sidelong at Rennie. His lips twitched as if he were suppressing a smile. Angry at Mr. Benedict, said Gonsu with a helpless look. But I don't, I don't think I can. At the problem, Rennie said. Try getting angry at that. Angry, Constance repeated thoughtfully. She gave a tight, resolute nod. Okay, she said. I can do that. Let's try again, Mr. Benedict. Mr. Benedict's eyes twinkled, whether the amusement or anticipation, it was impossible to say. Perhaps it was both. And taking another deep breath, he folded his hands together and said, By all means, my dear, let us try again. They locked eyes as they had done before. This time, however, Constance's face began to darken. She furrowed her brow, her lips pressed together, and her jaw began to clench and unclench. In moments, her face was exact hue of a pomegranate. She was visibly trembling now. She looked not just angry, but furious. Indeed, had the others not known better, they would have thought she was ready to fly at Mr. Benedict and try to pull his hair out. And then, abruptly, she stopped scowling and fell back. There, she gasped. This time I felt it. Putting hand to her head, she looked hopefully at Mr. Benedict. Well? Mr. Benedict nodded and smiled. He reached forward and squeezed her hand. I am enormously proud of your courage and selflessness, Constance. Thank you, my dear. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. I know you're proud of me, Constance said in an exasperated tone, but she shuddered. The color began to drain from her face. Oh no, oh no, here it comes. Tell me quick, Mr. Benedict, did it work? I'm afraid I can't say, Constance. Not yet, but we'll know soon enough. Right now, you should. No, I want to know now. Rennie, give him the poem, quick. Rennie was already unfolding the sheet of paper. He thrust it at Mr. Benedict. Constance wrote you a funny poem, he explained. She hoped you might use it as a sort of test. Constance groaned, crossed her arms tightly, and sank over onto her side. Mr. Benedict gazed at her with concern. Then he looked at the poem and read the title aloud. Why I find green plaid so annoying, and what I intend to do about it. An explanation of my heroic actions. Mr. Benedict's lips jerked forward. He coughed into his hand, looked round her at the older children, all of whom were grinning expectantly, and continued reading aloud from the first stanza. For one thing, plaid's hideous, a pattern cooked up, by dimwit designers who must have been mad. It's also perfidious, a word I looked up. It means lots of different things, all of them bad. Mr. Benedict chuckled, then laughed outright, and as he went on reading the poem, he laughed again, and then again, until finally he was laughing so hard, his shoulders were shaking, and he could hardly hold the paper still enough to read from it. 
The children began to giggle. Even normal laughter is contagious. And Mr. Bennick's high-pitched, chattering squeals, so much very like a dolphin screech, were not only contagious but funny in themselves. Even Constance, shivering and pale, managed to snicker through her moans. The giggles turned to laughter, and Mr. Bennick's laughs turned into goffles and strange coyote-like yelps. And soon the laughter grew so uproarious it drew the others to the study, so that eventually the room was packed with family and friends, with everyone laughing, though only a few knew why. And looking at everyone else with giddy, wondering expressions, indeed the laughter was so boisterous that it took a while for the newcomers to notice that Constance was not only laughing but crying too, and that in fact she looked terribly ill, and that despite she was gazing happily at Mr. Benedict, who had never laughed with such gusto for so long. Mm-hmm.